it's, it's great to be able to worship today. If this is your first time, worship with us online. I'm David. I am the pastor here. Normally, I would tell you it's good to see you. I can't see you. I miss you. This is an empty auditorium. This is getting old. I mean, we've been talking about this. Some of us are like, man, this is tiresome looking at, at, at just empty seats. Well, there's a few staff members here, but, you know, I see them all the time. I'm getting to the point where there are people I'm missing that I never thought I would miss. It's getting to the point that I'm even missing the deacons. I can't believe that. I, I'm almost at the point where I'm missing the parking team. I mean, I'm just missing having people here and seeing people. We miss you. But it is great during these crazy, uncertain times that we have the ability, that we have the technology, that, that we can worship together, even though it's completely different than what we're accustomed to. Hopefully, we won't get too comfortable to worshiping this way. I hope, and you know, when it won't be too much longer, we can all come together, that you won't say, nah, I've learned to enjoy doing it this way, because we need to be together. The book of Hebrews says, don't forsake the worshiping together with one another, to assemble, to be a part of something that is fantastic. I, you know, we're hoping that, you know, that we're seeing this pandemic, maybe as we hit the mountain, that maybe we're coming down to the other side a little bit, but it's still an uncertain way to go. We don't know what's going to happen. There are experts everywhere like you. I read and, and I watch on TV and the internet, all the different experts, and sometimes they contradict each other. And you're just saying, man, what do we do? And I find myself as a pastor, and now this is like, I'm almost in coming up on my 40th anniversary in ministry. I know it. You're looking at me saying you can't possibly be that old, but unfortunately I am. I'm, you know, I've started when I was 19. I'm coming up on 40 years, and, and I find myself, while this is the craziest thing that I've seen, asking the same question that I've always asked, and it's this. As a church, as a pastor, a, a, as we lead and we work, here's what I want to know. You know, what are we trying to accomplish? That's what really matters. I mean, what, what are we as First Baptist Church, one of I as the pastor, what are we trying to accomplish in all of this? And it all goes back really uh, to our purpose, our purpose as a church, our purpose as followers of Christ. You know, Jesus, after he was resurrected before his ascension, he made it clear what the purpose of the church was. He gave a command. He said, go make disciples. He said, go make disciples, baptize them and teach them. Uh, right before his ascension, he said, you're going to be my witnesses. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ. He also told us the motivation behind all this, why we do this. Uh, right before uh, the cross event, the week of the cross, and he was asked in the greatest commandment what it would be. He said, here, it's this, love God. And there's a second commandment, just like it, love people. Love God, love people. This, this concept of love, and the word for love that, that's used in the New Testament is a word that is rare outside of the New Testament. It's the word agape. It's probably the most dominant word we find in the New Testament. It is a selfless love. It is the love that God had in sending Jesus to us. It's the love that Jesus had in dying on the cross. It's the opposite of what we think of love today is selfish. If you love me, you will do things for me. The love that we see that Jesus talks about is a giving, selfless love. Our motivation in loving people is that we will bring them to Christ. And the reason we do that, John 14, 6 tells us this. Right before Jesus was betrayed, he's with the 11 remaining apostles. Judas had gone. And Jesus, he says this to those guys. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to the Father. Then he went to the cross and proved it and died for us. If he's the only way to the Father... And if we truly love God and truly love people, we're going to do what Jesus told us to do, make disciples. And so in everything we do, this is what 
matters. And so today we're going to come to a message, just try in the middle of all this stuff that's going on, you know, to try to sort out and let people understand and remind our church, you know, I haven't seen a lot of you in a month or more, to remind you what this is all about, why we exist. And so the message today is very simple. We preach the cross. That, that's the message. I'm coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And um, normally at this point I read the scripture, but what I'm going to do today is and in the message I'm going to go through it verse by verse and explain it to you. But this is what I want you to see from the message today. It's really important. This is what the message is all about. Our mission never changes. It never changes. We preach the cross so that people can believe in Jesus. That's the message. That's the purpose. We preach the cross so that people might believe and have faith in Jesus. So I'm going to begin today talking to you about a 2,000-year-old problem. I mean, since the church began, this has been the problem. How does the church relate to the world around it? In the passage in a minute, when we go through it, you're going to see the word world used a lot. And, and the concept of world in, in the New Testament, the cosmos, it, it can mean you know, the world is a planet sometimes. Sometimes it just means people. Sometimes it means people in opposition to God. And in this case, in the way it's going to be used, it's kind of the world in general, people in general, kind of in the way they live their life in opposition. We might just say culture. You know, how, how do we... How do we connect to a culture? John R. W. Stott, and um, he, you know, he's going to be with the Lord for a while now. Uh, you know, every pastor. Not only do we have the people in our lives that mentor us, that we know, and you know, seminary professors, you know, pa other pastors, but there's usually one or two guys we've never met that influence us. My generation of pastors, John R. W. Stott, this phenomenal Anglican pastor and scholar and just brilliant man wrote some of the most wonderful works. He wrote a book that's the most important book that I ever read outside of Scripture. It's called The Cross of Christ by Stott. One of the things Stott constantly reminds us is this, that the church is always to be counterculture. In the world in which we live, in a world that is always in opposition to God, in a culture that's always going to be in opposition to God, we are to be counterculture. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing. Now, we live... In a culture, and, and there's basically two extreme ways that the church, and I'm talking about the church now. I'm talking about, you know, the people who organize themselves in the churches, denominations. There's two ways, extreme ways we deal with the culture. One of the ways we deal with the culture is to adopt the culture. There are some who say that their belief system and their ideas about the church is that we are just to reflect the culture. They think in some way they'll attract the culture. Their goal is to be authentic or relevant in the culture. The other extreme is to attack the culture. It's the idea of staying true. And so you look at the culture, and instead of accepting, you attack everything about it. Their goal is to be authoritative. Now, while we need authenticity and we need authority, we can't adopt a culture, but nor can we attack the culture. That doesn't work. I mean, churches that do that are not going to grow. They're not going to reach people. They're not going to be effective. The truth of the matter is we have to understand that, that as followers of Christ, as a church, First Baptist Church, we are in the culture. And we're a part of the culture. The very fact that we're worshiping this way, we're a part of the culture. I'm looking at four different cameras. You know, I, I got a, you know, a praise band here. I'm not wearing a suit and tie. You know, you know, we've got technology all over the place. That's part of the culture. 
If you, if you were worshiping with us, you know, in our modern service, there wouldn't be anybody probably in a coat and tie. You'd be bringing coffee in to the auditorium. You'd be eating sweet rolls while you're in worship. 20 years ago, that wouldn't happen, but now it happens now. So we're in a culture. But the culture doesn't define us. The culture doesn't determine who we are and what we believe. But it does end up happening to some churches and some Christians. It shouldn't. But that's what ends up happening. And that was what was happening to the church that was in Corinth. Paul wrote this book, 1 Corinthians. Now, in Acts chapter 18, on the second journey, Paul went to the city of Corinth. It was a very cosmopolitan city. I mean, it was a very pagan city. It was on the coast. There were some Jews that worshipped there. Uh, but mostly there were you know, pagan religions, Greek culture, Greek wisdom. All that was there. And Paul was there 18 months, a year and a half, and he established a church. It had a few Jews in it, but primarily it was Gentile. And then Paul left. And after Paul left, the church began to kind of break apart. In fact, Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Two of them we have in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Before 1 Corinthians, he wrote a letter, we know, because he talks about that letter. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about a letter he wrote that we know is in 1 Corinthians. He dealt with this church all the time. And so what was happening in this church, there were these groups that were breaking apart. He mentioned several groups in the first chapter. But here's what really happened. If you read through 1 Corinthians carefully, there began to develop a group of people who saw themselves kind of as super-Christians. I mean, they, 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 they became elitist. And they began to read from the culture. They began to place themselves back into the culture and adopt the practices of the pagan culture in their mindset, in their thinking. And so they started to accept certain acts of immorality that was really unheard of. Uh, they, they began to, to when um, they would socialize with their pagan friends, they began to be a part of their pagan celebrations. Not that they worshipped the pagan gods or that they, or they did that. It's just that they, they were hanging around with them and they were eating food that was sacrificed, meat sacrificed to idols. And, and then when they came together for the Lord's Supper, there was, there was breaking apart. You know, they would start the Lord's Supper, a communion, before everybody arrived and they were getting drunk. And then they thought they had these super gifts, like they thought because they could speak in tongues, they were superior to everyone else. And then they began to question the resurrection. I mean, it was just a mess. And so Paul wrote to them. And early in the first chapter, as he writes in verse 18, this is what he says. And it's just unbelievable what verse 18 in chapter 1 says this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, I mean, I, I thought about just preaching this verse only and not the rest of the passage, but I'm going to focus here. Paul is saying, in the life, in the world, we don't care where you are, in your culture, there are two groups of people. He describes one group as those who are perishing and the other group as us who are being saved. Now, when Paul wrote in the Greek, he, he used these terms in such a way as to describe an ongoing process. There are people who are in the process of perishing. We wouldn't understand that to be because of their sin. We just spent seven weeks dealing with the cross. It's because of our sin that we perish. Then there are those who are being saved. They're not being saved because of what they have done. They're saved because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus. He describes two types of people. Now, the word perishing means to be lost. It, it has the spiritual connotation of condemned, of destroyed. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, 
be destroyed, but have eternal life. In John 10, verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. In verse 28, he says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall by no means ever perish. The idea of perish is to be eternally separated from God. The word for saved is to be rescued. It means to be saved from our sin, not because of we, what we've done, because of what Jesus did. So Paul says there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved, and he includes himself, us, him, and the, and the people he's writing to. They're a part of that group. And the determining factor is what we do with something called the message or the word of the cross. Now, the cross is, you know, is the cross event. It's the death of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Not going to go into great detail. Did that for the last seven weeks. The cross is basically synonymous with the gospel in this case. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, in dealing with the resurrection, Paul defines the gospel. He says that Jesus died uh, you know, on the cross according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised back to life by the power of God according to the scriptures on the third day. And he was seen. In other words, he died for our sins. He was raised back to life. That's the gospel. That's the cross. There is a message. The word, the word for message or the term word is, is another Greek word that's powerful and used a lot. It's logos. It, it's, it's the Greek word for our term word. And, and it means the message. It, it's what's important. The message of the cross, the gospel message, what do you do with that? Well, f- those who are perishing look at it as foolishness. They see the word of the cross, the gospel message, as being foolishness. The word foolish, uh, it comes from the Greek word moron. We get our term moron from it. It means to be an idiot. It means to be mentally incompetent. It means to be stupid is what it means. And I, and I know parents are sitting there with your kids, and you teach your kids, don't use the word stupid. And then the pastor just used the word. And now they're looking at you like, well, you know, Brother David said it, and it's be okay. Well, the reason I'm using it is so you can understand the severity of this term. It is a term that you do not want your children to use because of the severity of it. Paul is saying that those who reject the message of the cross, who are perishing, look at the gospel like it's something idiotic, moronic, or stupid. But to those who are being saved... The message has power. The word for power means the ability to do something. That message has the ability to save people from their sins. So Paul is laying out to these Corinthians because there's this fraction going on. They're splitting apart. And this group that thinks somehow that they're super Christians are adopting the ways of a world that in its foolishness is rejecting the gospel thinking it's foolish. And so he says, basically, there's two types of people in the world. And the problem is you're moving yourself away from those who are being saved and you're acting like the ones who are perishing. Then he comes to verse 19. And he uses an illustration, so we understand. This is from Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will lay aside. That's from Isaiah 29, 14. Uh, quickly, what's happening is the people of Israel are under assault from the Assyrians. They're trying to figure out what to do, and they're ignoring God. And Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, saying, the world's wisdom and the world's cleverness or understanding, I'm going to lay aside. I'm going to cast off. And so Paul now is dealing with the concept of wisdom. And wisdom becomes important uh, in understanding the rest of the passage as it relates to verse 18. Wisdom, and we kind of understand what wisdom is. Wisdom has to do with the ability to make decisions, good decisions. 
We value wisdom. Wisdom is based oftentimes on, on information, on intellect, but it's also based on experience. We look at older people as being wiser because they've lived longer and experienced more things, can tend to make better decisions. Uh, and so we, we value the concept of wisdom. And, and wisdom is founded in one of two places. It's either founded in the things that matter to God or it's not. And so there's worldly wisdom, wisdom that takes the advice of the world in making decisions, and then there's godly wisdom, wisdom that looks to God. Every day as a pastor, I pray, God, give me wisdom to know what you want and the faith to do it. You know, people tell me they pray for their pastor. That's good. I appreciate it. The number one thing you should always pray for is wisdom, that I have wisdom, because that's what really matters. It's godly sense of wisdom. The world's wisdom is not the same as God's. Now, in verse 20, Paul asks this question. Where is the wise man, he says in verse 20? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, the people thought they were wise. And he talks about the scribe and the debater, or the philosopher, or the the orator. He's talking to both Jews and Greeks. Jews had their concept of wisdom. The scribes did. Way back last September, I talked about how the Jews of Jesus' day had taken the Old Testament and all of us there, and they had turned it and transformed it into a system of rules and regulations. He says, where's the wisdom there? The the idea of debater is the orator. It's it's the Greek philosopher. So there's this sense of philosophy, of thinking of man's intuition. It's the wisdom of the world. Either way, it's not God's wisdom. Even if you want to couch it in religious terms, it's not God's wisdom. It's the wisdom of the world. Paul said, God has made that wisdom foolish. It is not the cross that is foolish. It is the wisdom of man that is foolish. Verse 21 says this, For since the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom, did not come to know God, God was pleased, well pleased, through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. So what Paul is saying is this, There is God's wisdom and there is man's wisdom. Man's wisdom rejects the gospel, the message of the cross. God's wisdom rejects man's wisdom. Why? Because God was well pleased. To look at the message preached, the message delivered, which man calls foolishness, God said that foolishness is how I'm going to save people who believe. So it's the foolishness of the cross in essence. Paul says those who believe, those who have faith, an important word to Paul is believe, faith, trust. Those who have faith in that cross, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, who trust the Lord, even if the world thinks it's foolishness, God has rejected the world as being foolish and is well pleased to save those who believe. That's us through the message of the cross. Verse 22 says, indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Jews want signs. They want proof. And the Greeks want wisdom, philosophy. Verse 23, Paul says this, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. The, the idea of a stumbling block is actually a scandal, a scandalion, and that's the, the concept. It's a scandal. The Jews think the cross is a scandal. Gentiles, the philosophers, think it's foolishness. That's fine. They can think that, but that's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the message of the cross. Why? Well, verse 24 tells us why we preach that. Here's what verse 24 says. But to those who were called to the saved, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter who you are. It is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That message of the cross is power. That message of the cross is wisdom. Why? Because it saves us. 
It's the power of God over sin. It is the power of God over death and the resurrection. It is the wisdom of God because it is in Christ that we are saved, not the efforts of man. So we understand that. So Paul kind of concludes it in verse 25 this way. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than him. So here's what he's saying. You Jews think the cross, you Jews think the cross is powerless? Well, understand. What you think is weak, what you think is powerless, God, it says, is more powerful than anything you have. You Greeks think that, that the cross is foolishness? Well, here's the thing. The cross is wiser than anything you have. So this is what Paul says. It is through the message of the cross we are saved. So in all this splitting apart, in all this divisiveness, why in the world are some of you looking to the wisdom of the world and bringing the world's wisdom into the church when all it's doing is destroying you? Why are you taking the culture and why are you trying to take the church and make it identical with the culture? See, we cannot adopt the culture and we cannot attack the culture. It won't work. But we can attract the culture through the message of the cross. That's the whole thing. The 2,000-year-old problem is simply this. You can't go adopt a culture and be just like it. That's going to tear your church apart. You can't attack the culture because if you do that, no one's going to come. <laughs> if all you do is, is tell them how horrible they are. But what you can do is attract the culture. How do you attract it? It is through the message of the cross. That is the 2,000-year-old uh, issue. We preach the cross of Christ. Which brings me to the second major thing I want to share with you today. And it's simply this. About the church. The church can influence the world or it can impress the world. But it can't do both. You understand that, right? The church can influence the world, or it can try to impress the world. It can't do both. I have a saying. Uh, I have a lot of things. That, <laughs> I have a lot in my personal life sayings that I use to kind of help give me guidance. And one of them is this. I don't plow in another man's field, but I can look over the fence and see the crop. What I mean is this. As a pastor, I don't try to look at what other churches are doing and judge what they're doing. I don't know their situation. I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, if, if they're obviously involved in heresy, I get that. But I have people over the years all the time, what do you think about this church? What do you think about that church? I don't plow into the men's field. But that doesn't mean I don't look over the fence and see what kind of crop they're producing. And right now, in churches all throughout America, the crop is just failing. It is horrible. We are not reaching people for Christ. You know, an interesting thing, um, if you were to look up and do some research and ask, what is the most persecuted persecuted group of people in all the world, the answer that comes up every time are Christians. This is not coming from Christians. In fact, the United Nations says Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. 250 million Christians live in persecution right now, one out of every eight. The areas that it's heaviest, Asia, Africa, Middle East. But here's also something that's interesting. The places where the church is growing the most or growing the fastest is also Asia and Africa and the Middle East. In fact, China, who persecutes Christians unmercifully, will have more Christians by the year 2030 than America. It'll be the largest Christian nation in the world. Right after that, shortly after that, India will be second, more than America. Every year in, in Africa, six to seven million Muslims convert to Christianity. Why? You think it's because they're adopting the culture? No. You think it's because they're attracting, attacking the culture? No. It's because they're, they're preaching the gospel. Look at Western Europe and America. You know, all, all, you know the, the church in, in the 1500s, you know, exploded back in Western Europe because of the Reformation. And now the church in Western Europe is basically dead. 
In America, the church struggles to, to maintain. We're not making any headway. Yeah, we got mega, mega churches, but a lot of churches are dying. Whole denominations are dying. You look at their entire denominations, that numbers are just plummeting. Why? Because we don't preach the gospel anymore. We're, we keep trying to be relevant and keep trying to adopt the culture, and, and the church is dying. We're not preaching the cause. And people say, well, the cross is offensive. Of course it's offensive. We know it's offensive. Jesus says it's offensive. Paul says it's a stumbling block. It comes across as foolishness, but it's how people are saved. And I hear, you know, all the time, well, you know, there's so many different groups and so many different religions, and, and all of them are trying to find ways to God. We just can't exclude them. Well, Jesus did. He said, I and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can ever come to the Father but through me. Jesus, whom we're supposed to follow, excluded everything but him. And that means he would exclude all the culture as a way to come to God. See, here's the problem. Christians and churches today want the culture to like and accept them, not reject and persecute them. That's the problem. We want the culture to like us. And I get it. I want to be liked. And we, we want the culture to accept us. We want to all get along. John 15, 18, right before Jesus was betrayed by Judas, here's what he told his disciples. If the world hates you, it hated me first. I mean, he's saying, the world's going to hate you. Hated me first. All of those guys he told that to, but one guy, John, they all died for their faith. I mean, the world hated them. We should expect that. The good news is the cross saves us. The bad news, the culture hates us. So here's the thing. The church, the church today has to understand, and I don't care what's going on, whether it's the pandemic or whether life is normal, Christians and the culture are letting, I mean, Christians and the churches are letting the culture determine what they should believe and how they should act. That's what we're doing. We're letting our culture determine what we should believe and how we should act. Let me give you some examples. You know, there's the concept of, of, of love that's in the New Testament. Phenomenal concept. Jesus said this in, in John 13, 34. In fact, the first Sunday of the summer in June, this is my message. I'm preaching uh, June and July through John 13. I'm going to start with this message. Jesus says, this is the new command that I give you, that you love one another. This is how people will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. We are to love. But the idea of love is the giving of yourself. And we take love, and we mean, well, let's accept whatever people do. If you love people, you'll just let them do whatever. No. I mean, parents, some of you moms are sitting next to your daughter. Maybe you've got a teenage daughter sitting next to you. Or if your teenage, your daughter's grown, you're going to get this. And your dad, you've got a teenage son sitting next to you. And if your son's gonna grown, you're going to get this. How many times if you're a teenager have you heard them say, man, I hate you? You know, maybe right now your, your kid wants to go to someone else's house because everybody's going. There's three or four of them are going over and you say, no, you know, we got to practice social distancing. You're going to stay at home. And they say, man, I just hate you. You don't want me to have any fun. You just want to dictate my life. And you hear this. What do you do when your kid says that? Do you say, you know what, I don't want you to hate me, so go ahead and go over? No, you don't say that. You tell them to knock it off. You may ground them. My mother would ground me. My mother would ground me for life. When my mother died, I was serving 27 life sentences for grounding. I mean, that was my mother's solution to everything, man. But you don't say, well, I love you, so I'm going to let you do something that's harmful. Love doesn't do that. But we, in the church, churches are changing the concept of love. To let people believe that everything they believe and everything they're doing is okay when God says it's not. We change the understanding of what truth is. 
And now we have people say, well, what's true for you isn't true for me. One person has one truth and one person has another truth. No, this is truth, Jesus says. I am truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in churches today, we are hearing people say, well, there's multiple ways to get to God. But Christ said there's not. You're changing that. And you're destroying people in the process. And we have lost sight of the purpose. The purpose of the church is to glorify God and bring people to Jesus. And now we got churches saying, no, our purpose is to meet felt needs and do ministry and just love on people. And listen, all of that's important. Certainly, when we minister, Jesus ministered. We're, we're called to minister, but that's not our purpose. That is the result of what we do. Our purpose, Jesus says, is to go make disciples. The motivating factor behind that is love. So because we love people, yeah, we'll minister to people. That's not the purpose of who we are. In fact, let me tell you this. If you really love people, you will share the message of the cross. I mean, it is the message of the cross that determines whether you are part of the perishing or part of the saved. It's not ministry. It's not even if you love them. It is how people respond to the message of the cross that determines whether they are going to be part of the perishing or part of the saved. If you love people, you will share the message of the cross. It is the only way to move from perishing to saved. Why am I telling you all this? Because sometimes we need a reminder. The church needs a reminder. People outside the church need a reminder. When people outside the church want to look at us and say, what are you about? And, you know, and I hear people outside the church all the time telling me what I'm supposed to do. I find it amazing that people that don't believe in Jesus tell someone who does believe in Jesus, what is he supposed to do? That's not how it works. We need to remember this. As a church, as Christians, this is it. We want to honor God. And bring people to Jesus. And everything we do as a church is designed to honor God and bring people to Jesus. Listen, what we're doing right now during this pandemic, every decision we make, and you may or may not agree with the decision, I get that, but every decision we make in mind is this, honor God, honor God, bring people to Jesus. I have a saying that I use if you're a part of our church, you've heard me say it quite often. Get people to Jesus as fast as you can. And the pandemic doesn't change that. We want people to come to Jesus. And if we don't do it by worldly wisdom, and we don't do it by worldly power, we do it when in love, and because of our knowledge that Jesus is the only way, we preach the cross. I guess what I really want to share with you today is if you're a follower of Christ and you're a part of our church, this is your church home, don't forget that's who we are. Remember that everything we're doing, that's what is in mind. And you pray. Whatever you're praying for our church, you keep praying that we honor God and reach people for Christ. That's what you do. If this isn't your church home, the First Baptist is not part of who you are and you live in this area, and when this is all over, you want to be a part of a church that seeks to honor God and bring people to Jesus, we would love for you to come be a part of who we are. We would love for that. But more than anything else, since we want to preach the cross, is if you've never trusted Christ, all the wisdom in the world, and I get that, and all the understanding in the world, and I understand it, but the bottom line is simply this. God rejects the wisdom of the world. and He wants you to follow Jesus. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to do that now. In just a moment when Brian the band comes, there's a phone number that's going to pop up on the screen. If you would like to talk to one of our pastors today, about what it means to be a follower of Christ or have one pray with you or whatever, text RESPOND to that number. 
Um, if you don't need to talk to someone today and you can wait till tomorrow or Tuesday, then you can go on our website and there's a place where it says contact. Hit contact, fill that out, put down what you want, and we'll do that. And we'll get back with you. But here's the thing. You need to give your life to Christ. Because if you don't give your life to Christ, you are part of the ones who are perishing. But if you will trust Jesus, you are the one who is being saved. Don't listen to the foolishness of worldly wisdom. Listen to the power of the cross. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. He died in our place and on our behalf. And we thank you, Father, that we can come and experience Christ as the Lord of our life. Not through our power. Not through our wisdom, but through you and through faith. Help us to trust Jesus. Help people who are listening right now who need to give their life to Jesus. Help them to trust Jesus. And help our church, even though we're scattered, help our church remember and pray and focus that we want to get people to Jesus as fast as we can. We preach the cross because it's only through the cross that people are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.